Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking at the first half of Jack London's novel, The Iron Heel. The Iron Heel first appeared in 1907 um, in novel form. Unlike some of the other works he published, which were published serially, this just came out as a novel. It is one of the 20th century's first and in some ways most uh, important dystopian novels. I wouldn't go so far as to call it science fiction, although it does have some elements that we could identify science fiction. It's it's ostensibly set in the far future, although the text is a product of of what from Jack London's point of view would have been the the near future. So, we actually have several embedded kind of contexts for this novel. We have um the novel's a manuscript, a manuscript that was written I think like in the 1920s or 19, early 1930s, some, I think it's the late 1920s, in the aftermath of a major working class uprising in the United States called the First Revolt, or sometimes just called the, the Chicago Commune. It was set there. Uh, the crushing of this uh, uprising uh, really set the context for the, the establishment and the rise of, of a corporate state, a corporatist state called the oligarchy. And this would rule America for around 200 years or so. Um, so the novel is a manuscript written in this transitional period. And it's actually, the events it relates actually begin right in when Jack London was actually writing the novel in, 2000, in, in, in 1906, 1907. And then it carries the story on for another 20 years or so. And then it, it ends abruptly with the death of the author. The, the document you're reading now is actually an edited version of this manuscript put together in the 26th century. The date we get for it is like the 5th century of BOI, I think is the term given. So they're not using the AD, BC um, labels anymore for dates, but it's set in the 5th century of some new era. So we can kind of put together the dates and... We know the oligarchy ruled for about 200 years, followed by basically a period of socialist prosperity and kind of perhaps world government and um, shared resources and, and, you know, just basically the socialist dream and overcoming the barbarism of the previous um, epoch. The document we're reading when we read The Iron Heel is written by this fictional character, Avis Everhart. It's a woman, uh, so our narrator is a woman. However, much of the novel consists of preaching and storytelling, long sermons uh, by several characters, and those are almost always male. So the points of view we get are by and large male, even though the narrator of the story is a female. 
This novel uh, fits nicely alongside Martin Eden, which was published, I think, two years later. They have very similar protagonists in The Iron Heel. It's Ernst Everhart, the husband um, of the author of the manuscript, Avis Everhart. He's a working class intellectual who has a chip on his shoulder to, uh, towards the ruling class, who likes to throw bombs, not, not literal bombs, but although at some point he does become a revolutionist, but he likes to throw intellectual bombs into groups of, of professors and clergy and capitalists challenging their ideas. In Martin Eden, you have a character also from a working class background, an autodidact, someone who taught himself, who feels always out of place in terms of class. Like in the beginning of the novel, he just he doesn't he can't even put his words together about what he can say. He can't express himself because he feels he's going to make a mistake. Um, and then as he becomes educated, he gets more and more aloof from his working class background. And then finally, when he reaches a certain level of intellectual achievement, he even feels he's, he realizes he's smarter than all those hoity-toity elite he once was intimidated by, and he ends up quite alone uh, and abandoned. And, and the character there ends up killing himself. In a sense, we have almost two sides to what of London's philosophy in these two novels as well. In The Iron Heel, we have on full display his socialism and his ideas, his beliefs in the importance of solidarity and, pro and social progress and organization and a well-managed society. And in Martin Eden, you have the results of a hyper-individualist um, person, and that is suicide. And this is a theme Jack London takes up a lot in his works, like The Sea Wolf and Call of the Wild and The Story to Build a Fire. Again and again, we see the failure of individualism and the necessity of, of some kind of solidarity and cooperation. And so in this sense, the Iron Heel pairs with Martin Eden, but the Iron Heel is perhaps more closer to his vision of what a, a rich and prosperous society should look like. We should label the Iron Heel a dystopian novel, but I don't know if there are many similar texts to compare to it. Jack London actually made some advances in fields of science fiction that are pretty common today. One is the post-apocalyptic story, the, the Scarlet Plague, which is about disease wiping out the world. And we have a lot of stories about the end of the world, kind of the last man type stories. Of course, Stephen King's The Stand is... Uh, one of the most well-known, but there are other stories that talk about disease as the end of the world. And then we have the dystopia here in which we have a, a, a government that's oppressive to the people in some way, and we get a look at how it functions, and then there's usually some resistance to that, and we've seen that a, a, a thousand times in, in literature. This one, often in those dystopian novels, we, we are kind of dropped in to the midst of a well-established and functioning society that maybe the people hate, but it's it's working, it's in, it's in full form. It's the machine of that society is running. In The Iron Heel, we actually see the development of, of this oligarchy. In fact, the beginning pages of the novel, it's indistinguishable from early 20th century American culture. You know, you have, for instance, you know, a functioning constitution and you have a legal system and yeah, it privileges the 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 capitalist class, but yeah, working class people can speak. You're allowed to have socialist parties and they run offices, run for office and they win elections. But over time, you see the growing suppression of these movements and the use of legal mechanisms to suppress them. And finally, by the end of the novel, we see the foundation for the establishment of this uh, totalitarian 
society called the oligarchy, which essentially is kind of a corporate state or a state run by, by corporations. Prophecy plays a big role in this novel in several ways. On the one hand, the editor of the version we're given as readers is constantly talking about how prophetic the character Ernst Everhart is on this issue or that issue. Now, of course, Jack London is imagining the fall of this oligarchy and the establishment of a socialist society. And, and therefore, there's kind of a teleology here. So, of course, Ernst Everhart is going to be right. He's the hero and he's, par he's, he's the conduit for Jack London's ideas. So, of course, he's going to be prophetic that way. Prophecy works that way. You have our narrator, um, Avis Everhart, the one who writes the manuscript is constantly talking about how Ernst Everhart is so prophetic and so predictive and he seems to be able to read the future and he, you know, and a, but it's a more short term kind of prophecy that she's talking about. And then we have us reading this book, knowing it's by Jack London, reading it in written in 1906, 1907. I, I presume he writes pretty fast because he wrote so much in a short life, but I, I don't know when he started writing it. But, you know, it's probably around that period of time. But we read this now and you say, wow, you know, this the corporate control of media or the corporate takeover of the university that's all in here or the, you know, how politicians are bought and sold or how the courts tend to support over time the, the capitalist class versus the working class, uh, the rise of a labor aristocracy, the use of the military to, you know, suppress left wing movements. Even if you read between the lines at various points, you can even perhaps predict talk about how Jack London's predicting the rise of Trump-like figures. So there's a lot we can look back at this book and say, wow, he got a lot right. Even though he was just kind of taking early 20th century socialistic ideas. And I don't think London's a particularly original thinker in anything. He talks about, he takes a lot of Marx, for instance. And when he, when he paints his theory, there's, I can't find anything that's really original, but he puts together in a way. And it turns out a lot of this is, is how it, worked out I think there's like one part I really like and it's mostly in the footnotes where there's a discussion about how the artistic class really gets co-opted by the by the ruling class and the oligarchy becomes a great age of art because of that and you have to see these great cities are being built and there's a couple mentioned artists is one and Asgard is the other so they take these kind of Norse mythological names but they build these great cities where art and culture thrive but essentially what we have here are gated communities because the ma vast majority of the working class is living in misery. And we can think of works like uh, another kind of dystopian novel, The Rise of the Meritocracy, which was written in 1958, which talks about how meritocracy is a great threat to working class politics because essentially what meritocracy does is it takes the brightest, the most creative, the hardest working, the, you know, the most talented of the working class gives them university degrees or gives them good jobs and basically takes them off and, and you know, lets them join the ruling class. And what that does is it takes away this creative energy from the working class. Now, older systems like the, in their aristocratic system, no matter how smart you are, you couldn't move up, right? There was no kind of space for social mobility. So basically they had, you know, they become much more radical and revolutionary because they wanted to have access to that social mobility. When they're given it to it, when they're given it through the university or whatever other institution, they basically become a banal political force. And Jack London sort of talks about this in the book, especially when he looks at the, the artists. 
Now, as I'm recording this, uh, Joe Biden, the former vice president of the United States, is going to be giving a speech on universal basic income. And we know what he essentially what he's going to say during this speech. He's going to come out against it. Now, universal basic income has been rising in, in public discourse and more people are talking about it these days. Uh, part of this is because people in Silicon Valley and a lot of the technocratic class are interested in the idea as kind of a, a solution to social problems or maybe the foundation for a consumer class or a creative class that can use modern technologies or maybe just you know to ensure the continuation of a consumer economy. Or some of them maybe they're not maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe some of them uh, truly are have socialistic tendencies, but I, I doubt it. And then, of course, this is an old idea, though. We can go back to see the first ideas about a universal basic income all the way back in Thomas Paine. And I actually did an episode on Thomas Paine earlier, and I talk about his article, Agrarian Justice. Thomas Paine's idea was that everyone, when they reach, like, I think it was the age of 18, would get a big chunk of money. And it was the equivalent of a lot of money. I think it was like $100,000 or something, which they could then use to mostly buy land, right? So this was a way of paying back what has been seized by kind of the ruling class. And it was paid for with high income tax and inheritance taxes. So you don't, basically when you die, you don't, you know, your children don't get a step up, but everyone gets a step up when they reach maturity. Now, other versions of universal basic income have been proffered over time. One that was supported by the right, especially in like the 60s and 70s, when they wanted to oppose the welfare state and the great society and all these means-tested social programs that we saw coming out of the New Deal, but particularly the great society of, of, of Johnson. What there, they didn't, they, they didn't like government involved in all this, but they knew they had to address poverty in some way. So their solution was a negative income tax. And I think Milton Friedman came up with this idea. And here would be if anyone made less than a certain amount of money, they'd get a check from the government to make up the difference. So at income tax time, you would ensure that everyone had a basic level of assistance. But this, the idea is that this would do away with these other uh, social means tested benefits, bureaucracy and all that. And then you have some of the libertarian left, like anarchists who like this idea because yeah it still has government instead of people in the dole but it's a less intrusive less invasive way of redistributing wealth to the people because it doesn't really involve you know you having to go and fill out forms right it avoids the bureaucratic aspect because everyone just gets a check so there's different formulas the, the most common one you might hear is that basically every citizen in a nation or every resident maybe gets a check, I don't know what it would be in the United States, maybe $1,000. Uh, so a family of four, we get $4,000 a year. Some say kids get it, some say they don't, whatever. There's different proposals, but the basic one is kind of like that. And then everyone, even Bill Gates would get it, but Bill Gates would be charged such higher rates of income tax uh, and taxes on wealth that that would pay for it. And he would actually put more into the system than you would get in the weekly checks or the monthly checks. So that's kind of the formula. Now, the, why is this becoming popular? Well, one is it's kind of become trendy in Silicon Valley, as I've already said, and you have people like Mark Zuckerberg calling for it. But another reason it's become popular is just concerns about automation. You know, automation seems to be, now the old model is, yeah, we used to have a lot of agricultural workers and machines took away those jobs, but people went to the factories. 
And yeah, machines took away those jobs eventually too, but then you go into the service sector, right? And what worries people is now service sector jobs and even professional jobs are being automated or have the potential to be automated in the, in the short near future. And the idea is like, this is going to take all these jobs away. And then you have jobs that you think, well, they couldn't have been automated 20 years ago, but now possibly could be like truck driving, which is a huge number of jobs in a country like the U.S. So if you don't have these jobs anymore, uh, and can you educate these people? You probably could, but what good would that do if there's not professional jobs and service jobs and you know high-tech jobs available for people? So basically, we're looking down the barrel of the gun of high structural unemployment if technology really does this. Now, this hasn't happened quite yet. Uh, there's certainly pockets that are experiencing more structural unemployment, and that's really where some of the Trump phenomenon comes from. But certainly it's a fear we have. So some are saying universal basic income will be the solution to this because it'll basically allow people to leave the workforce and do other things, right? Now back to Joe Biden. Joe Biden's given this speech against this. It's, stri it's striking to me that we have a major U.S. politician giving a speech about a proposal that's really not, I mean, even like Bernie Sanders isn't talking about universal basic income. So the fact that we need to have this preemptive strike by political class against this idea which something that's just an idea that's being floated and a few experiments being done is striking to me now what's his argument his argument seems to be and i haven't seen the speech but i've read the news reports about what he might be saying it seems to be that he thinks work is a foundation for community and kind of and for character building right that you need work to be kind of a full developed person right now this seems to me to show a profound lack of creativity about what it means to be a fully developed human being, right? If I've had a lot of jobs and I've never felt fulfilled or I never got meaning. And I certainly never felt I got character out of this. Um, now, James Livingston in his book Against Thrift, or is it No More Work? One of those books talks about how work doesn't seem to provide character anymore. In fact, we see this because there's really no correlation between hard work and effort and sacrifice and and remuneration. It, you know, people worked their whole life and had it all taken away in 2008, and that money basically went to the bankers, right? Who they weren't punished. They they trashed the economy and they got paid. They got the paycheck for it. So this this shows this this it's not really about character, right? If it was, people who worked harder would get paid more, and that's not the world we live in, obviously. Even you know, a lot of people now go in, you know, get an education, they do the right thing, they don't necessarily get that African American studies degree or whatever, or the philosophy degree that gets picked on all the time by right wing politicians. They get their engineering degree or their pre med or pre law or whatever, and they still enter this Uberized economy. So work doesn't seem to develop character. Now, David Graeber, another intellectual out there, has talked about how like the work ethic and the debt ethic are like the two big chains that we still carry around, right? This idea that you have an obligation to pay your debts and that you have an obligation to work hard for what you have. And what he points out is that these two things are things that are completely rejected by the ruling class already. They don't pay their debts. They forgive each other's debts all the time, right? That's what banks do all the time. That's what quantitative easing was. That's one reason they pay off the politicians is to you know, do that. They go bankrupt all the time without a concern. Yeah, when a working class person goes bankrupt, it's seen as a great moral crisis for the individual. Same thing about work, right? Rich people spend all the time 
golfing or whatever, and they still call themselves the job creators. So we need to kind of free ourselves from these shackles. Now, what does any of this have to... Well, enough to say that I think Joe Biden is really wrong here, but I find it very fascinating that the political class needs to make a preemptive strike against uh, UBI, which might actually bode well for the ideas of introduction. But as for the Iron Heel, iron, the Iron Heel shows this, this kind of inequality of experiences about work really well. I think it does a really good job of doing that. And he, he talks again and again about how technology, greater productivity, the machinery, greater organization, greater cooperation, all these things we see in the modern industrial economy has the potential of creating so much wealth and so much prosperity. And yet we have so many people in misery still you know and this is the great tragedy we have a utopia here now in just our ability to produce right we're already post-scarcity in in food and clothing and shelter and we're post-scarcity in many other things too i'm quite sure but things just aren't distributed very well i'm probably in an energy right certainly in things like internet access we're post-scarcity and media media is a big one right there's so much free media out there you know who who pays for DVDs and CDs anymore? I'll still buy opera CDs from time to time. Okay, so I guess it's, I'm 25 minutes in here and I haven't even really started talking about this book at all. As far as I can tell, the book's broken up kind of into two parts. I would say the first half of the book, or a little bit less than the first half, and the part I'm going to talk about today is a about, well, it really establishes the ideas of Ernst Everhart, the ideas of the socialists, the ideas of the revolutionists in the context of early 20th century American capitalism, right? And here we see Jack Lenny condensing the socialistic ideas, the ideas of Marx, and presenting them in a lightly fictionalized version. Usually, Ernst is giving a speech to some group. And he talks to several different groups, usually like the bourgeoisie uh, in the intellectuals in one, in one scene. He talks to um, the capitalists in another scene. He talks to like the petite bourgeoisie, the small business owners in another. And then we have a scene where a preacher or, or a bishop actually is talking to his followers and making the claim that religion should support the socialists. So we get these speeches by men. And that's why I said before, although the narrator of this book is a woman, we don't really get a female perspective on much of this. Um, there's really no differentiation given between like the female working class and the male working class, right? And labor historians and gender historians have broken this down and know a lot more about how women were kind of bearing two burdens, the burden of capitalist exploitation, but also gender and exploitation or patriarchy in the household right and there's been some great books about enslaved women in the pre-civil war south and how they were really feeling this kind of dual pressure of of racism and slavery but also patriarchy within their within their own families that's all set aside so if you you know we could just say that's jack london writing at the time but um you know he's got seems to have a woman issue and another way we see this is there there's a there's a scene in this book, which is almost copied directly in Martin Eden. Well, so in both Martin Eden and The Iron Hill, we have our protagonist is a strapping working class man, very 
strong and powerful and, uh, you know, kind of someone like Jack London himself or how Jack London probably saw himself, but very smart, able to all talk people in their mind. Martin Eden doesn't get there till later in the novel, but they both have this kind of class, come from a working class background, but they're put in situations where they're surrounded by the rich, right? And then we have a bourgeois woman, a young, young bourgeois woman who gets enamored with this person and gets sucked in and taken in by them and kind of falls for them, kind of just on love at first sight kind of thing. And it's a bit distasteful for modern readers to, to read this um, because it's like, it's just characters like Ernst Everhard are kind of overflowing with masculinity. It, and I can understand if modern readers might not like that, but it's kind of what you're going to get with Jack London. You're going to get this hyper masculinity quite a lot um, and kind of an ignorance of or ignoring of gender issues. I, I can't think of any works of Jack London that really takes seriously the woman's point of view, at least not ones that I've read. Um, okay, so, you know, so what we have in the first part of The Iron Heel is really from the get go. The first chapter is called My Eagle. Well, we actually we start with a, a preface, which is by the editor, and he talks about the discovery of this manuscript and how this answers a lot of questions about the Everharts. It doesn't answer what happened to them, and we presume they were executed by the oligarchy sometime after the events narrated in the novel end. Um, then we get a chapter, the chapter, first chapter called My Eagle, which is essentially when she meets Ernst Everhart. Avis meets Ernst Everhart and falls in love with him. And how does she fall in love with him? Well, she sees him talking to these professors and out showing them, you know, showing that he's smarter than them, showing he has a better ideas and showing the flaws in their own worldview. And that's a common thing that happens. It happens like six or seven times in this book. And it gets a little repetitive and a little bit preachy. And I don't know if there's much to say about it. I, I like this book. I think it's funny and I enjoy reading it and I'm sympathetic to the ideas. I can imagine if someone wasn't sympathetic to the ideas, they wouldn't like it. I'm, I mean, if you ever read The Jungle, right? The Jungle is a really fascinating novel. Just if anyone picks it up, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a socialistic novel, but it's not till the last chapter that you get this kind of preachiness in it where it's kind of like, you know, raise the red flag in the final chapter of the jungle. But before that, it's it's just the experiences of this immigrant family. In the Iron Hill, you have preaching from the beginning. And I don't know, I, I can imagine some people might not like that. So if that you're not into that, you may not like the Iron Hill. But if it is a nice introduction to, I think, the ideas of socialism. And I think there's one really huge idea here that I think we should take seriously and we're still, um, still going to shape our future if we Listen to what the, the socialists and the anarchists of the time had to say. Um, we see early in the novel how Avis gets converted to socialism. Part of it certainly has to do with her, her love for Ernst Everhart and her fascination with him and, you know, her getting all excited and puff, you know, and heated up when she's around him. But there's, you know, she, London does take the time to have her get there a little bit more organically than that. She meets a, a man named Jackson who's currently, who lost his arm in a industrial accident and is struggling to, you know, get his payment in court. And Avis assumes, of course, she'll get money, right? That's only just, it's only moral that the company that benefited from his labor would pay for him in his old age now or later in his life now that he can't work anymore but no she learns that the 
lawyers for the company basically avoided paying him anything and now he's going to be destitute and he's like peddling stuff on the street he's really living a miserable life and she's the lesson she learns here is essentially the the corporate class the ruling class is going to go through whatever means it can to screw workers and this is kind of the turning point for her. She also meets uh, a man, Bishop Morehouse, the uh, bishop. And he's going to be an important figure because he, he's going to support the socialists. But he's the symbol of what the church should be in London's point of view. Uh, at the time, the church was often rightfully criticized as not really having the best interests of working people and the working poor in mind. Joe Hill, the songwriter, the, the, the wobbly, the IWW member, wrote this famous song, The Preacher and the Slave. And it's making fun of the fact that churches would, yeah, they'd give charity, but they always expected you to convert to. And they would often say things like, well, yeah, you're poor now, but if you live a good life, you don't ask for too much, you live a moral life, you're going to have, quote, pie in the sky. And this was mocked in that song, of course, but it was a a common complaint the socialists had of the church is that they tended to support the values of the ruling class and they didn't really have a critique of capitalism that you'd think would come out of the Christian tradition, right? That Jesus worked with the poor, he talked about poverty and he talked about poor relief and he talked about the problems of the rich and getting into heaven and all this stuff is in in the Bible, of course. So there's a socialistic tendency in Christianity, but it hasn't been the mainstream American Christian worldview, and uh, we're still dealing with that today, where a lot of evangelicals tend to, you know, not support some of the more progressive politics. So rather than reading through all these speeches, um, I'll, I'll just tell you sort of where they are. I, I will talk about one in a little bit more detail, because I think it's really the heart of, of this whole book, at least especially the first half of it. Because even though it's called The Iron Heel, it's not really a book about this despotic oligarchy that rules the United States for, for centuries. It's really about John London's vision of what a well-managed, well-organized society could be and why shared prosperity is inevitable and, you know, a, a, a forward-looking movement. So in chapter five, Ernst gives a speech essentially to the ruling class in a kind of society meeting organized by Avis's father, who, who's sympathetic to socialism. And he's actually the one who introduces her to, to Ernst in the first place. It's called the Philomath Club, and that's the name of the chapter, the Philomath. And actually, I think the speech goes on for two whole chapters um, where he lectures uh, the ruling class. And what he accuses them of doing is essentially mismanaging society. So that's his argument to the plutocrats. You've mismanaged society. It makes no sense to have poverty and mass wealth, right? Why are we just as, mis most people just as miserable as they were in caveman days if now one worker can make what a thousand cavemen could do in a day thanks to technology, right? How does that make sense? That's just the worst possible management. And that's his accusation for them. And he also says, if you don't manage society better, you're going to have a revolution. And one of the people in the audience says, fine, like, we'll win. We have guns and you don't. And over, you know, over the course of the novel, Ernst becomes more pessimistic about the future. And he starts to talk more and more about armed revolution. At this point, he talks more about power and how to acquire political power. 
And he, he says at one point that this is what the working class obsesses about, is how to get power. Who has it and how can we get it? Um, we get a speech by the bishop where he lectures essentially his congregation about how they need to be more sympathetic to socialism and be on board this social transformation that's going to take place. Yet the most interesting for me is chapter 8 called The Machine Breakers. In this chapter, Ernst talks to the the, the smaller capitalist class, but from the perspective of maybe 1850, these would have been big capitalists. These are the people who maybe moved into a town and started up a, a grocery, but pushed out three or four small local fruit stands and other gro small grocers in doing that, but now are feeling the, the pressure of the oligarchy, right? Through, whether it's through their supply chain or whether it's through bigger competition. Essentially, it's their... They're the local businesses that got pushed up by Walmart, right? And now they, they're starting to organize and say, how do we survive this? And they say, well, we need to like preserve competition from the oligarchy, right? It's, it's anti-competitive. We need to go back to this tradition of, of, of small businesses and, and open competition and free competition. And Ernst listens to them because he seems to want to, they want to build alliances with the socialists. And Ernst says, you guys are Luddites calls them you're the machine breakers you're luddites you want to break the thing that's liberating us and that is organization and management and technology really it doesn't make sense he says for there to be all this local competition that's that's anarchy at one point he calls it he calls it kind of the anarchy of competition right yeah the oligarchy is horrible and brutal and they use power to achieve these horrible ends. But in a sense, they're on the right side of history because they're part of this trajectory towards greater organization and centralization. And they, the potential there is for better management. The tools are there, but, no, but the management is not being well implemented. And so it's not about going back into the past. It's about seizing power and taking from the oligarchy their control and then put it in the hands of better managers who we think will be the working class or, or the people. To I'm not going to quote much from this book because it, it is rather preachy, but this is what he'll say. When he says free opportunity for all, he means free opportunity to squeeze profits, which freedom of opportunity is now denied him by the great trusts. And the absurd thing about it is that you have repeated these phrases so often that you believe them. You want opportunity to plunder your fellow man in your own small way, but you hypnotize yourselves into thinking you want freedom. You are piggish and acquisitive, but the magic of your phrases leads you to believe that you are patriotic. Your desire for profits, which is sheer selfish, you metamorphize into altruistic solicitude for the suffering humanity. Come on now, right here amongst ourselves and be honest for once. Look the matter in the face and state it in direct terms. Later on, he says this, which kind of, I guess, sums up. This is on page 407 of the Library of America version of this book. Uh, and this is basically what he thinks the future of society will be. Quote, this is a fiat of evolution. It is the word of God. Combination is stronger than competition. Primitive man was the puny creature hiding in the crevices of the rocks. He combined and made war upon his carnivorous enemies. They were competitive beasts. Primitive man was a competitive beast because, he, because of it, he rose to primacy over other animals. And man has been achieving greater and greater combinations ever since. It is combination versus competition, a thousand centuries long struggle in which competition has always been worsen, worsted. Who else enlists on the side of competition perishes? End quote. Right. So again, the trusts 
as horrible as they are, are on the right side of history, and it's these small businesses are not. And I, I think this is where you can look for his thesis. Um, in the next chapter, chapter nine, we have the mathematics of a dream, which is a really good introduction to Marxist uh, theory of profit, if you don't know it. It's all summarized here. And essentially, it kind of picks a global picture of, of this. And this Ernst in full glory in this chapter, talking about his whole vision, his global vision of what's going to happen in the future. And basically, it's a problem of overproduction, right? Uh, with more technology and greater, you know, productivity, yet with great inequality means you're going to have producing more stuff than the working class can consume. To keep profits going, you're going to have to sell that surplus abroad. And that's going to lead to imperialism and the creation of markets. Now, for a while, that's fine because there'll be open markets. But as those markets develop and have their own surpluses, there's going to be war. And there's all kinds of predictions here about who that war will be with. I think in the novel, London rightfully predicts a war between the United States and Germany, um, which, of course, did happen in World War I and World War II. So Mathematics of the Dream, Chapter 9, is kind of the last great speech in this novel. And from then on, the novel becomes much more about the events of the revolutionists and the political story. And I'll talk about that in the next episode. But the first half of this novel really kind of sets up all this socialistic theory, gives us the character of Ernst, who in many ways is just an archetype. It gives us Avis, who, again, is not really a full developed character. None of the characters here have any substantial development. They're... They're really just devices for Jack London to deliver this, this message. That may be unfortunate. So people wanting a riveting story aren't going to get it in this novel, at least not until the second half where it becomes, you know, there's a more action in the second half. And I'll, but I'll talk about that in the next episode. Um, so with that, I will, will go. And uh, in a few days, I'll come back and talk about the, the second half of The Iron Heel. But thank you so much for listening. If you read The Iron Heel, I'd love to hear your comments about it. You can either post a review or write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll try to get back to you or, or read your letter online. Um, if you have opinions about his views on women and how women are presented in this and other ones of his works, that's something, a conversation I'd like to start having. So, um, what do you think about universal basic income? What do you think about the future of technology. What does it mean for our economies and, Amer and American life? So, yeah. Uh, once again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will be back soon with the other half, the second half of the Iron Heel. You